Today, Bitcoin does it. It hits an all-time high again, $12,000, sitting at 12022 Just crossed the threshold. I'm sitting here watching it, waiting for it to happen, and it happened. Oh my goodness, guys, we gotta discuss this. I am extremely worried about something I see out here that is in regards to Bitcoin and as far as um, this new investor group of people. I've seen a ton of ton of buzz on Bitcoin. Yeah, there's and a I've, lot of buzz on Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. I'm kind of wondering if I should maybe pull my stocks out and go into that market. No. No. No, under no circumstances. When it comes to the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, there are plenty of supporters and doubters. But a recent hike in its price left many people wondering, is it a bubble? And if so, when will it burst? When will there be a crash? Unfortunately, we don't have that exact answer for you today on Business Briefing, but we are going to hear a first-hand account of a crash and what economists used to think caused crashes. But first, Josh Nicholas explores why the hype around Bitcoin looks so suspicious and what this could tell us about the future of tech platform businesses. The stock market is basically a manifestation of the psychology of every single person who's investing. And so, of course, there's going to be these crazy stages. This is Catherine Hunt a lecturer in accounting and finance at Griffith University. She's talking about a recognisable pattern that bubbles and crashes tend to follow. The first phase is called displacement. So where there's a new paradigm, something new is happening and we're starting to um, revalue things in a, in a new method. And then there's the boom phase as well, which is characterised by momentum and media coverage and that kind of thing. After displacement and boom comes euphoria the third stage. Asset values are through the roof and we're all freaking out because it's so amazing. And then the smart people start to say, okay, great, let's take some profits from this. So profit taking begins. And once that happens, it's a very quick slope towards panic, the last phase. You know what, right now, breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. Pauline Chu The period before the dot-com crash in 2001 maybe the best example of what sets this whole process off. The internet was new and exciting, and so people put a lot of money into companies like Pets.com. But there are current examples as well. This is such a blow to investors, whether you're a big... We look at the current age and look at how we're revaluing these um, collective economy companies as well, like Airbnb and Uber and that kind of thing. We, we're kind of looking at them with this same lens of thinking, oh, well, there is only one Uber, there is only one Airbnb, they're in this, this is their market. Um, but in, a, in an open market, that's not the case at all. There's always going to be competition and these companies will fall. It's just probably that they'll fall in, you know, 30 or 40 years, not necessarily tomorrow. There are also current examples that resemble the third and fourth phases in a crash, boom and euphoria. So if we think about even Bitcoin now, for example, um, just because it's topical and because my dad asked me on the weekend, what do you think about investing in Bitcoin? My dad is a musician. So um, this makes alarm bells ring in my head. Okay. <laughs> so when everyone's thinking, well, we all need to get in on this and individual investors as well as the actual institutional investors are putting money in. Asset values are just continuing to climb and they're all justifying it to each other based on all this media coverage that they've seen as well, that it is the next best thing. It seems like almost nothing can get in the way of Bitcoin's epic run. The total global value of Bitcoin to more than $121 billion. 
But before the crash really begins, there's one last phase, and that's when the smart people take their money out. So the smart people, they'll hold in one hand, for example, Bitcoin, and then they'll hold in their other hand everything else, all the other possibilities. And they'll just do a simple trade-off of risk and reward, basically. So for example, in 2007, 2008, term deposits in Australia were getting 8%. So the wise financial advisors and investment managers at that point said, yes, shares are almost certain to get a more reward over the long term than cash will. But at the moment, the, the risk associated with shares is consistent and quite high. And the risk of cash is zero. So let's just invest in cash for a few years now and, and take this guaranteed 8%. And then there's the final stage, panic. We can't say what will set it off because it's different every time. But there are still patterns in what goes on next. If you can't find a buyer for your shares, you'll accept any price. And so inherently, those prices will fall and then continue to fall as the next people are forced to sell. As soon as shares drop by, say, 20%, we're all freaking out. Even the most educated people and the most experienced investment managers freak out when things drop 20% because we feel that pain so much more than a rise of, and then we feel the joy of a rise of 20%. This panic just continues and snowballs until um, basically we're all antelopes off the end of a cliff. Of course, we don't know that Bitcoin and Uber are bubbles and will crash. This is only something we can see in hindsight. So there's patterns in everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but the problem with these patterns is that in hindsight, we look at them and we identify every single stage perfectly to a T. But when we're in the moment, it's, it's just impossible to do that. I'm Eleanor Harrison-Dengate and I'm an intern with The Conversation. Back in 2007, John Crosby, now a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, was sitting at his desk in Lloyds of London and nearing the end of his 20-year career in investment banking. I remember reading in the newspapers, the Financial Times, that HSBC were reporting large losses on their subprime mortgages. And I thought, that should be, could be quite bad. 2007 was the year preceding one of the greatest financial crises in history. London was competing with New York as the banking capital of the world and easy lending in the US housing market meant almost anyone could qualify for a home loan. This led to enormous numbers of subprime mortgages that couldn't be repaid and meant banks were holding over $4.1 trillion worth of toxic debt. The global financial crisis would claim the jobs of over 30 million people and bring entire countries to the edge of insolvency. John was working in London when he first realised something was wrong. A year later, during the crash itself, he was on the trading floor of UBS in Zurich. In June of 2007, I remember talking to some of the traders at Lloyd's, where I was then, and we all talked about the fact that volatility was very, very low. Normally, volatility is a measure of the riskiness of the market. So when the volatility is very low, you think the markets, in a sense, are not in a crisis. Everything's OK. The markets were quiet. Not much seemed to be happening. After the global financial crisis, Lloyd's received a government bailout worth nearly $32 billion. John realised something was wrong thanks to one of his co-workers. But the girl behind me was... Re amongst her responsibilities was 
looking after all the branches of Lloyd's. And basically, she was phoning around the relevant people and saying, if you have sums of money to deposit, come to us in London. And, you know, that wasn't normal, right? It was perfectly normal that you did business with anybody you wanted to, assuming unless there was a real credit risk issue with the bank. Essentially, the banks knew that other banks were carrying what was later to be known as toxic debt and stopped trusting each other. But that was kind of the start of the crisis. But despite the fact that that was in 2007, I don't think anyone was quite prepared for the panic of 2008. The rumour mongering in the market was that everybody had problems, which was true, actually. I think by the time Lehman's went bust, which I think was September the 15th, 2008, everyone knew Lehman's were in serious trouble. It was just a case of who was next. Shares are off 3%, London down 2.7%, and U.S. stocks could open lower by 300 points. And this is all because we're waking up to two fewer investment banks on Wall Street. Lehman Brothers has filed for bankruptcy, and Bank of America is taking over Merrill Lynch in a $50 billion deal. A lot of what employees at a major bank are doing at that moment is damage limitation, right? People were way too complacent before the crisis, and then during the crisis, it's one of blind panic. Now, the Dow traders are standing there watching in amazement, and I don't blame them. That's not right. My experiences were a little bit different. I'd been around a bit longer. It was maybe the sort of younger people who'd not sort of really seen anything like this before thinking every day things are going to get worse, whereas in reality there was, there was light at the end of the tunnel. For investors who were brave enough, for example, to buy the stock market at the bottom, uh, they've actually seen quite attractive returns over the last nine years, but of course few were brave enough to do it, right? For you personally, in the months afterwards, you know, what, what was happening? What did you decide to do? I mean, my other recollection is how many people were fired at UBS. Thousands were made redundant at the end of 2008 in a complete panic measure. And by the summer of 2009, they were actually calling up some of the people they'd made redundant, saying, would you like to come back and work for us? And we're going on a massive recruiting drive. This is how short-term banks are. What I found at UBS after the crisis, we were just firefighting all the problems that had come up during the crisis. And um, a lot of people that I know from the time I was working investment banking, an extraordinarily large number have now left. The world before the crisis was one of financial innovation. Uh, and I think 2008 marked the end of financial innovation. I mean, one thing that has not returned since the crisis is banks' confidence in other banks. Banks don't lend to other banks. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. If you like business briefing, check out Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a new podcast from The Conversation where we ask academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. And our January episode is all about risk. Things like, how do you really calculate the risk of a behaviour that you know is not really great for you but doesn't seem to have any consequences at the time? 
just watching television on your couch every 60 minutes that you do that takes off a half a micro life. So that costs you 15 minutes of your lifespan. Oh my God, I knew I shouldn't have watched so much Game of Thrones. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Pocket Casts and listen to us online at theconversation.com. Hello, my name is Callum Halliday. I'm an intern on the Business and Economy desk at The Conversation, and I spoke to Senior Professor of Economic and Business History at the University of Wollongong, Simon Ville, about some of the more peculiar financial crashes and theories throughout history. The real reason, as I understand it, for this drop is that people have been speculating on small margins. It was not that the stock market was very much too high, but that people were so enthusiastic. Economists have long theorized about the factors that cause a financial market to crash, and events throughout history have provided some interesting examples as to how speculation leads to market bubbles. With the benefit of hindsight, we can look back at these events and identify the problems that led to the collapse in the market. Economists throughout the 18th and 19th century have had a grapple of trying to understand the fairly new concept of a market crash, which has led to some really colorful theories. One of these theories came from British economist William Stanley Jevon, who believed that sunspots could be the key to understanding market crashes, as Simon explains. Jevons, who was a serious researcher, had researched trade cycles, the ups and downs, for 150 years, not while he was alive, but before and then during his mid-19th century, noticed that there were things called sunspots, which is basically hyperactive radiation uh, on the sun, lots of energy and activity. Uh, and he was interested to find out that the, the cycle of sunspots was very similar, somewhere between 10 and 11 years, as the trade cycle back on Earth. And he therefore wondered whether there was a relationship. And uh, Jevons came to the conclusion that there was a relationship, which basically said, uh, as sunspots affected the, the climate on Earth, as, as it led to warming, we had better harvests, and better harvests meant cheaper food. And if people had cheaper food, they had more money in their pockets. There was more employment, had more money in their pockets to buy other more non-necessities, and therefore this led to an economic boom. So he had shown what he believed to be a causal. Uh, and this became a very, very popular uh, uh, notion in the 19th century, we have since um, discredited this notion. Scandal's behaviour by companies was rife, even before the time of William Stanley Jevon. The most noticeable being the South Sea Company, which was given monopoly of, on trade to South America by the British Empire. In 1711, the company was an exciting new venture for many Brits, most of whom were affluent and put their life savings into the company, to the point where it became a frenzy and a national obsession to discuss its stock price. The price eventually hit £1,000 per share in 1720, which is equivalent to over US dollars per share today. This is despite the fact that the company never actually turned a profit, as the British Empire were hostile and even at war with the Spanish Empire, who controlled and influenced most of South America. When it became clear that the company never actually made any money or could make money, it eventually collapsed. There are so many examples of earlier booms and busts that resonate with similar ones today. Simon has also told me about tulip mania, considered to be the first bubble ca crash in recorded history. The tulip mania uh, was located in uh, the Netherlands in the early 17th century, particularly the uh, 1630s. And at that time, uh, tulips became very much a high fashion 
cultural icon. Remember that this is the time of the economic boom in the Netherlands because of their big overseas trade, their Dutch East India Company and so forth. There was a lot of money around, a lot of wealth in places like Amsterdam. Uh, and therefore, culture, fashion and so forth became important. People had money to spend. And one of the things that really interested people were the bulbs, the tulip bulbs that, that were well known to be grown in, in the Netherlands uh, at any time. But what, hap what happens is that you have to buy the bulb before you know uh, what the flower is going to look like. So it's inevitably you're almost like a uh, historical futures market. You're buying for something that will produce or deliver in the future. And that inevitably creates a sen sense of uncertainty and sense of speculation. What are you actually buying? Will you get you know, the full value of what you're paying for? And this became such a popular thing that people you know, paid more and more for these tulip bulbs so that they, they could almost become, you know, somebody's life savings just to buy a single bulb. Uh, and ultimately, of course, like all forms of hyperactivity, uh, there came a point where people realised that this is ridiculous, that they're paying far too much money. And like any market, once it hit that sort of change in a climate from optimism to pessimism, the price collapsed with it very, very quickly indeed, and people lost their fortunes. Uh, uh, some made fortunes and, and others quickly lost fortunes. That was Callum Halliday, who's interning with us at The Conversation, and you also heard from another of our interns, Eleanor Harrison-Dengate. Thanks also to my partner on the business desk, Josh Nicholas. I'm Jenny Henderson, editor for Business and Economy at The Conversation. Business Briefing's theme music is by Ben Sound, and this is the last episode in this series, so watch this space next year. And in the meantime, you can go back and listen to other episodes of Business Briefing on The Conversation's website or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. <laughs>